All right. Uh, how good is that? Not, not so good? It's good stuff. I'll just, I'll just say it. It's amazing. I love it. I'll, I'll take that. Um, hey, just real quick. Uh, I know it's packed today. And, and we anticipated that it would be with everybody coming back from summer. So let me just say a couple of things quickly. Uh, I shared last Sunday, and if you weren't here, you probably want to hear this, that uh, the contractor for the building we've been renovating, he's telling us that we should be in that building by the end of October, which is a huge deal. Uh, the, the move can't come soon enough. And if you just look around, you can kind of see what I mean. So just be praying for that. But in the meantime, over the next couple months, uh, I just want to remind you, we have an 8.30 and a 5.30 gathering, okay? Um, 8.30 these days is, is getting really full as well. We had to open the, the curtains at 8.30 this morning. Uh, 5.30, there are uh, 5 o'clock, I'm sorry, 8.30, 5 o'clock. We have a lot of seats open at 5 o'clock still. And so if you're someone who can help free up some space on Sunday mornings and come later in the day, uh, man, you can really, really help make space for folks in the next couple of months by doing that, all right? So think on that, pray on that, and uh, that way you won't have to sit in anybody's lap when you come, all right? I literally think we have people sitting in the bathroom this morning, so it's amazing. Well, listen, if you have a Bible or an app with you with a Bible app, grab those things and let's go to Mark 8 together. Mark chapter 8. If you're new to Cross Point or this is your first time back in a long time, this entire year we've been in a series on the book of Mark and today we're in week 24 of the series. And so again, Mark 8 is where we're going to be. This past week, my daughter, she started back to school like many of your kids And on her first day, she came home and we said, Rowan, how was school? And she said, it was great. I made a new friend and her name isn't Jeanette. (laughs) If you don't have kids, that's what a conversation with a six-year-old sounds like. Her name isn't Jeanette, but she let me call her Jeanette because I couldn't remember her name. (laughs) Jeanette sounds like a really good friend to me, yes? Now listen, here's, here's the honest truth. We've all been there, haven't we? Uh, we've all experienced moments in which our memories have failed us, functioning much like the memory of a six-year-old. And the good news is in many cases, it's not that big of a deal. You know, we go to the store, we forget the milk. Uh, we rent a movie from Redbox, we forget to take it back, therefore we now own the movie. Yes, uh, we forget someone's name, so we just make a name up. It doesn't really matter. But in other cases, in other cases, the opposite is true. Like how many of you know that forgetting something of major significance can create a major negative impact, not only in your life, but on other people? Yes. If you're in a marriage or dating relationship, forget your anniversary one time. Just one. And and you'll see what I'm talking about, right? We all know that forgetfulness in certain cases is harmless, yet in other cases, it's harmful and can prove very destructive. And that's what we're going to see in our passage for today. The disciples of Jesus forget. And they forget something of major significance. And their forgetfulness impacts their trust in Jesus. And they come very, very close to falling into unbelief. I believe we have a lot to learn from them. And so we're going to spend our time together talking about the importance of spiritually remembering along with the dangers of forgetting. And so if your Bibles are open, we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 8, verse 1, and get to work. Here's what Mark says. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, 
Jesus called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me three days now and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said back to Jesus, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before him, uh, before them. And they ate and they were what? I love that. That's how Jesus does it, right? Uh, no short change in folks. They ate and they were satisfied and they took up the broken pieces left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people and Jesus sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dao Manutha. Now we'll stop there and talk, all right? Uh, what we find in these first 10 verses is a story very similar to one we covered weeks ago out of Mark chapter 6. If you were here, do you remember the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000? Yes. Uh, if you weren't here, or maybe you forgot, or maybe you were taking a nap, like you were here, but you just missed the whole thing, I'll catch you up, all right? Uh, in Mark chapter 6, we find this story of Jesus and his disciples. Uh, attempting to take a mini vacation, if you will. They were exhausted from ministry, and so they were trying to get away for some R&R, but the crowds of people they had been ministering to refused to let them disappear. In fact, the Bible says that when Jesus and his disciples got off the boat in the town they traveled to, the crowds were there waiting on them. And so Jesus steps off the boat, and he sees the crowd, and in Mark 6, verse 34, it says that Jesus had compassion on them, because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Now, as we learned in that message, that language there is highly significant because it reveals that the first need Jesus saw in that crowd was their spiritual need, right? He saw them as people without spiritual direction, guidance, leadership, protection, and that's why Jesus responded the way he did. He got off the boat and he sat down with the crowd and he began to teach them many things, right? He served in a way as a spiritual shepherd, but here in Mark 8, he had compassion on this crowd for a different reason. Why did he show this crowd compassion? Well, the story says it was because these people were hungry. Jesus sees the crowd and he calls his disciples and he says, hey, listen, these people, they've been with me for three days now and they've eaten nothing and we can't send them home like this because if we try to send them home like this, they're going to pass out on the way because some of them live really, really far from here. Now, I love this because Jesus' compassion in this moment, it shows us that he not only cares about our spiritual needs, that's primary, of course, but he also cares about our physical needs. Isn't that incredible? It also reminds us, please don't miss this, that if we follow Jesus, we should care about the physical needs of other people. That's why we do a lot of the things we do here at Crosspoint to meet the physical needs of broken, suffering people. It's why we drill clean water wells in Africa. It's why we send teams to do ministry all over the world. It's why we give clothes and food away to people who are uh, struggling, impoverished, even homeless. It's why we pray for the sick and, and we visit people struggling with various illnesses and diseases. We do every single bit of it because according to what Jesus says and does all throughout the gospels, those physical needs matter to him. 
And we're a church that believes if those needs matter to Jesus, they should matter to us. And isn't that what Jesus was basically saying to his disciples in the story? I mean, he called them together and he says, guys, look, these people need help and we need to be the people to help them. Well, instead of replying and saying to Jesus, his disciples, instead of saying, you know what? Jesus, you're right. Let's do this. Us together, we're going to figure this out. They ask a really interesting question in verse four. They look back at their leader and they say to him, Jesus, how can anybody feed all these people with bread out here in this desolate place? Now, here's why I say that that's an interesting question. Because just two chapters earlier in Mark 6, the disciples faced that same predicament, didn't they? Do you remember the story? They're out in the desolate place with 5,000 men. If you include women and children, that could have been upwards of 10,000 people. Uh, Those people were hungry. They had a few loaves of bread, five, and just two fish. And they saw with their own eyes, Jesus miraculously multiply the loaves and the fish. And then he gave the food to them to give to the people. Yet here they are going, Jesus, how in the world are we ever going to pull this off? Do you know what their question implies? It implies that somehow they had forgotten. They forgot what Jesus had previously done. They had forgotten how Jesus had used them to meet the needs of those spiritually and physically malnourished people. And so again, here they are. Jesus, how in the world are we going to pull this off? We're going to come back to their forgetfulness in just a few moments and talk about it in greater detail. So don't forget it, all right? But Jesus, we see his great patience in the story. And I can just almost picture him kind of like rubbing his face. All right, are we back to this place again? You know, all right, let's hit the replay button. And with great patience, he answers their question with a question like he did in Mark 6. Okay, guys, let's talk about this. How many loaves of bread do we have? And they go and do some recon work and they come back and go, all right, Jesus, we have seven loaves of bread. And he goes, awesome, I can work with that. That's not in the story, but that's just what I picture him saying, right? Give me the loaves. And so he takes the loaves along with a few small fish they found, and he blesses them, breaks them, puts them into the hands of the disciples, and the disciples feed the people until they're satisfied, and then they have seven full baskets of bread left over. And apparently, these baskets were different than the baskets in the first story, different Greek word used there. These baskets were large enough to carry a full-grown man, and so there was a lot of food left over after they fed the people. Now, with all that said, I will say um, there's a lot more we could dig into from those first 10 verses. But instead of doing that, what I want to do now is move away from the story of the feeding And I want us to spend the rest of our time together really focusing in on the reactions of two different groups of people following what took place. And those two groups of people are the Pharisees, and as I said a moment ago, the disciples. And we're going to start with the Pharisees. So if your Bibles are still open, look back down at verse 11 with me. Mark goes on and he says this, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again and went to the other side. So the reaction that we see in the Pharisees is this, a refusal to recognize. A refusal to recognize. And what did they refuse to recognize? They refused to recognize who Jesus was 
and all that he had done to prove not only uh, his character and his identity, but his very purpose for coming into the world. And as we unpack these few verses we just read, I think their refusal to recognize those things will become clear to you. Mark says that they show up and they started to argue with Jesus. Isn't it amazing how overly religious, self-righteous people always want to argue? And maybe amazing is not the right word. Maybe annoying is a better word choice, right? It's almost like self-righteous people because they spend so much of their time trying to prove themselves to God, elevating themselves over others, that over time they start to believe that other people that are less than them have some type of responsibility to prove themselves to them. Can we just make an agreement today as a church family? Uh, can we agree together to never be those people? All right, y'all are worrying me here. Um, so let me ask you again. Can we agree to never be those people? Are you with me? Those prideful, argumentative, self-righteous people who claim to follow Jesus, but whose lives look nothing like his. Can we agree to that? Make a pact today? All right, let's remember today we all agreed we're not going to be those people. The Pharisees show up. They begin to argue with Jesus. And then Mark says that they sought a sign from heaven in order to test him. This is so interesting. What they wanted from Jesus was proof. They were basically saying, Jesus, you've been making some outrageous claims lately. Claims implying that that you, for some reason, think that you're God. And so Jesus, uh, what we need you to do is perform a sign from heaven right now on the spot to convince us that you are who you say you are. Now that's an interesting request, isn't it? It's interesting when you consider the amount of proof Jesus had already offered through all the miracles he performed up until this point in the book of Mark. And in case you haven't been here, I'll just touch on these quickly so you see what I mean. Look, uh, Mark chapter one, Jesus drove a demon out of a man in the synagogue. He healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever, healed many others and drove out more demons in Capernaum and he healed a man suffering from leprosy. And then in Mark chapter two, he healed a paralytic whose friends cut a hole in the roof of someone else's house and lowered him down in front of Jesus. Jesus forgave that man of his sins and then told him to stand up and grab his mat and walk out the front door, and he did. Uh, In Mark chapter three, he healed a man with a shriveled hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath. In Mark chapter four, he calmed a raging storm by the power of his word. I love that story. The disciples are so worried that Jesus doesn't care. Jesus doesn't love them. They're gonna die. And Jesus wakes up out of a dead sleep and he you know, wipes his face off and stands on the edge of the boat and says, peace be still. Or in other words, hey, storm, put a muzzle on it. And nature itself obeys the very words of Jesus. Uh, in Mark chapter five, he delivered a man from the legion of demons living inside of him. He raised Jairus' daughter, this little girl from the dead. He also healed a woman with an issue of blood that had been struggling with a chronic illness for 12 years and Jesus restored her on the spot. Uh, in Mark chapter six, he fed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. He also walked on the water Another amazing story. He healed the sick in Gennesaret. And then in Mark chapter seven, he delivered a little Gentile girl from demon possession from afar. Didn't even go to her house. Just told her mom, hey, you just go back home. She's gonna be fine. And she was. He went on to heal a deaf and a mute man in that same chapter. And then in the chapter we're studying today, he fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. So think about this. 
After all that, the Pharisees are saying to Jesus, we need proof. We need proof that you are who you say you are. Why did they need more? Why did they ask Jesus for a sign from heaven? Well, the answer lies in the difference between miracles and signs. You see, I I found this very interesting as I've studied the book of Mark. Uh, When you really dig into the language throughout the book, you start to notice that Mark uses two different Greek words for miracle and sign. And that difference in the words is significant because it reveals the difference in motive when asking for those things. And I want you to stay with me. I'll make this easy to understand, okay? Asking for a miracle, that's an expression of faith. Practically, it sounds like this. God, I believe you can, so will you. Are you with me? God, I believe you can, so will you. I believe you can heal this sickness, God, so will you. I believe you can restore my broken marriage. So will you. I believe you can bring my prodigal kid back home. So will you. God, I believe you can provide for me in supernatural ways. So will you. Do you hear the expression of faith in those kinds of requests? Listen, personally, I believe that asking God for miracles honors God. Because in doing so, we are simply recognizing who he is and what he's capable of. And that's why here around Crosspoint, we're not afraid to ask God to perform miracles. We ask him to perform miracles all the time. And listen, sometimes he does, and then sometimes he doesn't. But in either scenario, we know that we are honoring God by asking. Why? Because asking for a miracle is an expression of faith. Asking for a sign is different. At least asking for the kind of sign that the Pharisees wanted. Asking for a sign is this. It's an expression of unbelief. Asking for a sign practically, here's what it sounds like. Uh, God, if you will, then I'll believe. Right? What's a miracle? Uh, God, I believe you can, so will you. Asking for a sign. God, if you will, then I'll believe. God, give me the sign I'm asking for. I might actually believe you exist. Uh, God, if you'll give me a sign tomorrow, it's supposed to rain. So let there just be this one little pocket of sunshine over my house. And then I'll actually believe you love and care for me. God, if you'll give me this sign I want, I might actually decide to follow after you. Do you hear the expression of unbelief in those requests? Listen, I would caution us to be really careful here. Uh, I would caution us against being those people who ask God for those types of signs in unbelief. And the reason is simple. Here it is. Because when you ask God for a sign like that, you're declaring, number one, that his word cannot be trusted And that number two, his work isn't enough. And I'll unpack that for us and help us understand it, all right? Uh, First, his word can't be trusted. Do you know that the opposite of faith is not unbelief? Does anybody know what the opposite of faith is? No, you can tell it's the first week of school. Nobody wants to like talk out loud, right? Here it is. Look, and you can check me. Go read your Bibles on your own. See if I'm right about this, but I'm going to make my case. I believe from what I see in the scriptures that the opposite of faith is sight. Isn't that what Hebrews 11.1 teaches? That faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not what? Not seen. So in other words, true faith simply takes God at his word. 
True faith doesn't need to see in order to believe. True faith says, God, you know what? I believe that you are who you say you are, and I believe you're going to do everything that you've promised to do. And so if you're that person who says to God in unbelief, well, God, I'm going to need to see some things before I actually believe what you have to say. What you are declaring simply is, God, your word cannot be trusted. You need to prove or authenticate yourself to me in a different way. Do you hear the danger here? Secondly, in asking God for a sign, you're declaring again that his work isn't enough. I mean, that's what the Pharisees declared to Jesus, right? Jesus, you've done all these amazing things. I mean, you've raised people from the dead. You've healed lepers. You walked on the water. Nobody's ever done that before. Uh, But Jesus, we're we're gonna need a little bit more from you. And if you give us just a little bit more, well, then we'll actually believe. This is why Jesus does what he does in the the passage. (laughs) He's standing before the Pharisees and he goes, ah, sighs deeply in his spirit. And then he says, why does this generation of people keep asking for signs? I'm not gonna give a sign. I'm not gonna do anything else for you. And then in a parallel account in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus, we find him making one exception. He says, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. So what in the world is the sign of Jonah? Do you know the story of Jonah? Even if you didn't grow up in church, you may have heard the really like weird, crazy, almost unbelievable story about God sending a big fish to swallow a guy. That's Jonah, right? God wanted to send this prophet named Jonah to a city named Nineveh, and he didn't want to go because the people of Nineveh were evil, and they were violent, and they were murderous, and Jonah wasn't too crazy about them repenting and God showing them his grace. And so he decided, I'm not going. Got on a boat, went in the opposite direction. Well, eventually God caught up with him and God used this great fish that he sent after Jonah to swallow him up and Jonah spent three days and nights in the belly of this fish before it finally vomited him up onto dry land. Now, don't don't miss this. Look, when that fish spit him up and Jonah was delivered from that fish by God, his deliverance served as a sign to the people of Nineveh that he had been sent by God and therefore they needed to listen to what he had to say. In the same way, please hear me, in the same way, Jesus Christ, when he laid his life down at the cross in our place for our sins 2,000 years ago, after doing so, he spent three days in the belly of the earth, very much dead. And then on that third day, that Sunday morning, what did God do? He delivered Jesus from death. He raised him up. And today, his resurrection is the sign for us that Jesus is who he claimed to be, right? The very son of God sent into the world to save sinners like you and me. That means that we don't need any other sign outside of that one to believe. The resurrection is enough for us to listen to and follow after Jesus, I mean, I've told you before, I'm a pretty simple-minded guy, but I'll just say it again. I'm the kind of guy that believes if someone can predict his own death and resurrection and pull the whole thing off, like no other sign is necessary at that point. We should probably listen to that guy. So what that means is simple. When we say to Jesus, hey, we need more from you than what you've already done in order for us to believe, what we're basically saying is what? Your work's not enough for us, Jesus. I mean, yeah, 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 we get it. You died and rose from the dead. But Jesus, we're gonna need a little bit more in order for our unbelief to be conquered 
and overcome. I hope you hear the dangers here. We don't ask God for signs. Why? It suggests to him that his word cannot be trusted and that his work isn't enough. The disciples' response. So the Pharisees, what do they do? They refuse to recognize. And then the disciples, we see their response in the, uh, in the last part of the chapter. We'll throw this up here. We'll, we'll read it and then I'll make the point. Verse 14, look at it with me. It says, now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the disciples began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? We'll come back to that question. It's a big one. And then he goes on and he says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to Jesus, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to Jesus, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Here's the response we see in the disciples. A failure to remember. The Pharisees refuse to recognize. The disciples, they fail to remember. So Mark says they're in this boat with Jesus and somebody forgot to bring the bread. Like you had one job, bro, remember the bread and you forgot it. And so like everybody's upset because they're hungry. They don't have any bread. And Jesus, because he knows their hearts, he gives them this warning. And it's weird at first, right? Hey guys, uh, be careful. Be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Really weird statement, right? Until you understand the metaphor. You see, throughout the Bible, leaven is typically used as a metaphor for sin and unbelief. And so what Jesus was saying in that moment to his guys was this. He's going, hey, uh, watch your hearts right now. You're coming dangerously close to falling into the same type of unbelief that those religious and political leaders have already fallen into. Because I'm just telling you, you're about to miss me, who I am, what I'm capable of, why I've come to the earth. And so check your hearts and don't allow yourselves to go there. Well, unfortunately, the disciples missed the warning. That statement was apparently strange to them as well. You know, they're talking about bread. Jesus is talking about leaven. I think we're talking about the same thing here. And so they rush right past the warning and continue to discuss, maybe even argue about the fact that somebody forgot the bread. And so Jesus decides ultimately to step up in this moment and to address their their lack of spiritual remembrance head on. And he does it with five questions. He says, guys, why are you talking about this? The fact that you have no bread. Do you not perceive? Do you not understand? Uh, Are your hearts hard? Like, is that the issue here? I know you have eyes. I know you have ears. Are you not seeing? Are you not hearing? And then he asked the big question that I said we'd come back to. Do you not remember? Do you not remember being there when I fed the 5,000? Do you not remember being there when I fed the 4,000? Guys, just in case you don't remember, let let me help you remember. Pop quiz time, all right? Everybody get out a pen pen and a piece of paper, write down your answers, and then Jesus asked some questions. All right, first, uh, when I had the five loaves and the two fish and the 5,000 were there and we fed them, how many baskets of food did you guys take up? 
And can't you just picture the disciples responding to Jesus in the same way that your kids respond to you when you've caught them doing something they shouldn't be doing, right? 12, Jesus, we collected 12. (laughs) And Jesus says, ding, 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 ding. Right, everybody's got 100 so far. Second question. When I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves of bread, how many baskets of food did you take up? We took up seven, Jesus. We took up seven right again. And then he says to his guys, look up here. What's the issue then? What's the issue then? You've seen what I'm capable of. And I'm sitting in the boat right next to you. So why are you losing your minds about the fact that you have no bread? Do you not understand who I am yet? Pause button. Before we're tempted to like throw down rebuke on the disciples, can we just have an honest moment? We've all been there, haven't we? We've all experienced moments and even seasons in life in which we have failed to remember Jesus. Something happens and we forget him and we forget what he's capable of and we forget all the amazing things he has done in our life along the way. And like the disciples, due to our spiritual forgetfulness, those things that we can't see, that we don't have, that we can't overcome, they start to overwhelm us and as a result, we walk in fear, anxiety, and defeat. You know, it's like when you struggle financially, And God comes through and provides for you supernaturally in ways you never knew God could provide for you. And then a few years later, unexpected financial struggles pop back up in your life again. And you're looking at those struggles, panicking, going, oh my gosh, how am I ever going to overcome it? Or it's like when your rebellious kid does leave, right? They abandon God and they abandon you. And so what do you do? You get on your face and and you get all your friends praying and you beg God to bring them back and he does in his faithfulness. He hunts them down and he restores them back to you and back to himself. And then a few years later, the same thing starts to happen with one of your other kids. But this time, instead of getting back on your face and asking all your friends to pray, you start to panic and you start to question, what have I done wrong? (laughs) Well, what could I have done differently? Is there something I can say or do to convince him not to go back down this road? Or, or it's like when that sin in your life that you overcame years ago, that that struggle you've already defeated, it starts to rear its ugly head in your life again. And even the temptation itself starts to bring back these horrific feelings of guilt and shame. And instead of running to God in humility and saying, God, would you do in my life again what you've already done in fear, you start to question, how am I going to beat that thing all over again? Has anybody been there? Listen, I gotta be honest. I picture Jesus in those scenarios and in scenarios like them looking at us from heaven and saying, do you not remember? Do you not remember who I am? Do you not remember what I'm capable of? Do you not remember what I've already done in your life? The provision, the pursuing, the restoration, the deliverance, the freedom. Do you not understand and remember that I laid my life down to change yours and to prove my great love for you? If you just remember and come to me, I could do all over again those things I have already done. Look, I truly believe that some of us in the house today need to remember. God brought us here at a cross point not to learn anything new on this Sunday. Uh, but to remind us to recall some very old things that we've known all along but forgotten. 
And if you're that person in the room who needs to remember, I want to give you three specific things to remember, not just today, but always as a follower of Jesus Christ. And they're really simple things. Here they are. It starts here. You remember Jesus? You remember Jesus? And as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.8, you remember Jesus risen from the dead. Why risen from the dead? Because when you remember Jesus risen from the dead, you also remember that Jesus can resurrect anything in your life, no matter how dead, difficult, or overwhelming it might seem to you, right? I mean, let's just be honest here. Uh, If Jesus has conquered death and will one day safely carry us through it, why wouldn't we believe that Jesus can conquer and carry us safely through anything else we'll face in life? He can. And so you remember Jesus. And then secondly, you remember his work. You remember the work that he's accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. Work that saved you out of sin, death, and hell and allowed the God of the universe to adopt you into his family as a loved son or a loved daughter. But you don't just remember that work. You also remember his specific work in your life. Like we have to be those people at times who slow down long enough to think back and to remember those moments and seasons of faithfulness. We gotta remember those times when we prayed specific prayers and God answered them on our behalf. We have to remember those moments in which God showed up in our lives in ways that only he could to do things only he could do. And look up here at me as we think back. We remember if God could do it once, he could do it again. And then finally, 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 we remember his word. We remember his word. We remember all of his promises to us. Promises to be with us and to be for us to never leave us, to never forsake us, promises to carry us safely through or to deliver us from anything we might face in this life. And ultimately, we remember this great promise that that God, his commitment to us as his sons and daughters is to one day bring us out of this broken, sin-plagued world and to carry us safely home to himself. Listen, we anchor our soul in those promises And we hope in his word to us, even when all hope seems to be lost. I'll just be honest as we close and say, when I think about this story, I think if the disciples would have remembered those things, uh, we'd be reading a different story today. Don't you think that? Instead of reading that the disciples panicked because they have no bread, I think we'd be reading a story that went something like this. Uh, Somebody forgot the bread, right? Disciples on the boat with Jesus. Somebody forgot the bread and they started to get a little hangry. Anybody... Y'all know that word? Yes, hangry. But before anybody could like really get too worked up, Peter spoke up and, and he said, hey guys, uh, remember, Jesus is here. He's on the boat with us. And we all know from personal experience that he is in the business of bread multiplication. And so, hey, Jesus, Jesus, you remember that thing you did those two times for those crowds of people? Uh, the thing with, with the bread and the fish, like somehow you took the, 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 the small stuff, uh, the not a lot, and you made it into a whole lot and you multiplied it. Remember that? Jesus, you think you could do that again right now for us with this one measly loaf of bread we brought? Listen, in the same way, don't you think by remembering your story could read differently? Yeah, I do. And so for those of you in the room who've forgotten, you've forgotten Jesus, you've forgotten his work, you've forgotten his word, I just want to challenge you, let today be the day that you start remembering. I will leave you with this, and then we'll pray, and we'll be done. The great A.W. Tozer, he was once quoted as saying this, anything God has ever done, he can do now. Do we believe that? 
If we don't believe it, we might as well go home and do something else. I hope you believe it. I believe it. Anything God has ever done, he can do right now. Anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do right here. And then look at this. Anything God has ever done for anyone, he can do for you. Let's remember Jesus today, especially for those people who've forgotten. And let's ask him to do in our lives all over again what he's already done. Will you pray with me? As we are settling into this moment, I'm going to ask our prayer team to come and to get in their places. And as they're coming, um, I believe there may be some of us in the room today who don't so much need to remember. uh, Instead, we need to recognize. We're kind of like the Pharisees in the story, right? We've been walking in unbelief for a long time. We've never recognized Jesus as the Son of God who came and laid his life down for us so that we could be accepted into God's family, loved by him, experienced a changed life both now and in eternity. And so if you're that person who's shown up today and, and you know, that's what I need. You walked in hopeless. Uh, you walked in defeated. You walked in overwhelmed. And maybe you're that person who pretends like all those things aren't true, but they really are and you know it. And you've tried to look to so many people and to so many things to fix yourself, but nothing has really worked. I just want to tell you, nothing's ever going to change in your life until you turn to Jesus. Jesus loves you. And he gave his life up for you to prove it. And the only thing it takes to have a relationship with him is a willingness to acknowledge him for who he is and what he's done. And so if you need to do that right now in this moment, I want to help you. Why don't you just say to Jesus in prayer, Jesus, I recognize who you are. I am confessing today that you are the son of God. You gave your life up for me at the cross. You did it so that my sins could be forgiven forever. So that I could be loved and accepted by God. And Jesus, I also recognize that three days later, you rose from the dead and that your resurrection is the only sign I need to believe. And so Jesus, right now, would you forgive me of all my sins, past, present, and future? take hold of my life and make me into the person you've created me to be. Jesus, I say yes to a relationship with you. So with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you prayed that or you prayed something like that, I wanna ask you to do me a favor, if you will. Would you be willing to just uh, acknowledge the fact that you made that decision today by lifting a hand? Just throw it up wherever you are, James, that's me. Um, Just keep your hand up. Our prayer team's gonna come and put a resource in your hand. And as soon as you receive that resource, you can put your hand back down. James, that's me. Put my faith in Jesus today for the first time. Recognized him. Asked him to change my life. Anybody else? Anybody else? Throw it up high where we can see it. They're on their way. As soon as you receive the resource, you can put your hand back down. Awesome, awesome, awesome. For the rest of us, the band is gonna come and lead us in one last song. And we're just going to spend some time worshiping and remembering. So let me pray for us, and we're going to do that. Father, in the next few moments, uh, God, move in this place. Bring to remembrance some of those things that that we've forgotten, that we need to see fresh all over again. God, we trust you for that. We're thankful for your great love for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.